Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 86, and today we are talking about our favorite nonfiction of 2016. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with my fellow podcast, Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. It's time for the truth. Yes, it is time for the truth. And the truth is that we are doing a double header this morning. So we just finished our fiction episode like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> So the dog is like still asleep on the floor and I still don't have my good podcasting mic because it's still broken and the new one is still shipping. Still not wearing Uh, pants. So we're coming to our listeners by this episode from like two weeks in the past. Yeah. Lots of things (laughs) will have happened. We're magic. Who knows what will be happening in the world by the time this episode is out. But Um, not Christmas yet. Right. I am clinging to Christmas this year. (laughs) It's not usually something I'm interested in, but I was like, I need lights and pretty and happy, please. Oh, yeah. I love the holiday season. So I've been, I am deep into like, I made gingerbread yesterday and I'm listening to all the Christmas music on Spotify and the house has like so many ornaments around it. There's glitter everywhere. Like I went to yoga the other day and there was glitter all over my mat because it was all over my clothes. (laughs) like I'm a magic yoga sparkle pony yeah uh, but it's the season it is the season uh and there were so many great nonfiction books this year yes absolutely I actually I'm I'm a little disappointed in myself usually I do like a pretty even split mm. like maybe a, like a little bit more fiction than nonfiction but this year I was like super fiction heavy I don't know why that is huh but I still got I to read some amazing stuff I haven't really crunched any of my numbers yet, so I don't know where it's all going to land. But I feel like I read lots of great nonfiction and that it was really spread out between sort of deep dives and narrative nonfiction and memoirs and essays. There was like a little bit of everything this year. See, I'm at that point. I think I've discussed this before, but like I'm at the point in December now where I'm super excited to turn my reading count back to zero and start again. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... Starting to wonder, like, what should my first book be? It's a lot of pressure on myself <laughs> that I put. Um, so I get really excited. I'm like, okay, let's talk about 2017 now. Let's talk about that. When there's well, still, like, three weeks to read. And we're going to talk about 2017 next week. Yes. With our pre- preview show. So stay tuned for that. Yes. But do you want to kick us off? Can you handle the truth? I'm ready. Okay. No surprises here. My first pick is Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places by Colin Dickey. Love this book. Love it so much. Uh, It's sort of a different look at American history. It's told through the lens of haunted places. Uh, Colin went and visited some of the most famous haunted locations in America, like the House of Seven Gables, which we all know from the Mm -hmm. Hawthorne story. Um, He went to visit the Winchester House in California, which is the story of the Winchester Rifle 
widow who supposedly kept building rooms on her house because as long as there were too many rooms for the ghosts of the people who were murdered by Winchester rifles to find her, she would be safe. So she just kept, like, adding on to her house until she died, like, never stopped. Um, He visited uh, derelict homes, abandoned hospitals and prisons, and he talks about the reasons that these places might, might be haunted. Like, some of them have a famous incident where someone died. Some of them don't, but, you know, hospitals and prisons, a lot of, you know, a lot of bad memories, a lot of bad things happen there. Um, And he talks about how the stories of these hauntings have sort of changed as history has changed. Like, as time went by, like, how the stories changed. And he doesn't come down on one side or the other, like, whether ghosts are real. Like, you get to decide that for yourself. Like, he's not saying, like, this is wrong because ghosts aren't real and here's why. You know, he, he doesn't take a hard stand um it's just it's more like a history book with ghosts like they just happen to be there um it's just a really an amazing history book and but then again ghosts i don't think ghosts have been given such intelligent thoughtful consideration until now it's just a really smart interesting book again it is called ghostland an american history in haunted places by colin dickey I'm going to start off with a heavy hitter, the biggest, like literal biggest uh, nonfiction book that I read this year, and also biggest probably in the scope of its ideas is The Gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Um, I know that I talked about this when it came out. He just does this masterful mix of like very comprehensive, well-researched nonfiction, but he's an amazing storyteller as well. And so this is the story of the gene and how we have come to understand it. And he starts way back with Gregor Mendel and crossbreeding the peas and keeping track of which ones came out, which colors. Um, Like, you know, you remember making Punnett squares in high school biology. He talks about sort of how we came to that understanding of what genes were, what they do, what they're responsible for, um, really how long it took in the development of science to get to this idea of the gene of something, you know, in our bodies that's coded to make us look and behave certain ways that gives us predispositions to different illnesses, all sorts of stuff. And then he moves up through uh, our modern understanding of the gene and also still how limited it is. Like in a lot of ways, we're just at the very beginning of understanding what we can do with genes and um, how we might manipulate them to improve people's health. Also the risks involved in manipulating genes, both um, medically and ethically. Uh, going forward, there are all of these things that could be done in the future. There's all these like slippery slope ideas about what might happen if doctors understand too much about genes, or if we become okay with manipulating genes in certain ways, or um, you know, selecting children for certain features, that kind of thing, which are you know real and frightening possibilities. And he just tells the story with such grace. It's I've said this about both of his books. And um, he also wrote *The Emperor of All Maladies*, which is a biography of cancer that. You think you don't want to read like a 700-page book about genes, but he makes it just so fascinating. I sort of did it like a chapter a day. Um, To me, there's so much information. The information density in the book is so great that uh, it was not a like sit down and plow through the whole thing. You really want to think about it and probably Google a bunch of things. And like, it's one of those books that any answer in it prompts you to ask a bunch of questions and to go out in search of answers to those questions. Um, I think for people who are curious about science and medicine and the role that those are playing in the world today, it's a really excellent pick. Um, If you're listening to this show and you're needing like a 
last minute book pick for uh, like, it's a dad book, I think, in the best possible way, like those big nonfiction books that we give to dads at the holidays when we don't know what else to give them. Uh, You couldn't go wrong with this one. But it's something that I think just about anyone could glean useful information from and certainly big and important ideas today. So that is The Gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee. And now speaking of genes. (laughs) Speaking of genes and how Mother Nature fitted you out or not, I guess. uh, Our first sponsor this week is Third Love. Their 24-7 t-shirt bra, as you know if you've been listening to this show, is the most comfortable bra that Liberty or I have ever owned. Uh, It is super smoothing. It disappears under your clothing. uh, So you don't have any, you know, outlines showing where you don't want them showing. Like this is a problem that I have had with bras in the past. And I think most bra wearing people have where like, you're trying to have this sleek look, and you think you have the right bra for the outfit. But then you realize that you can see the outline of your bra through the front of your dress. And it's like, instead of here's my nice dress, it's like, this is where my breasts are. Um, And third love, makes that not happen. The the t-shirt bra molds to your shape. It's made of memory foam, which I just think is amazing. Uh, So it molds to your shape. Uh, It fits you rather than you fitting it uh, to give you that perfect fit. Um, In addition to the memory foam, the hook and eye at the back is padded and it's tagless. So there's nothing itchy uh, to deal with there. The band is smoothing microfiber. So everything just, you know, fits very nicely, whether you're dealing with cup spillage or cup gaping or slipping straps in your other bras, the Third Love 24-7 t-shirt bra will solve that problem for you. If you're not sure what size you are or if you haven't been fitted in a while, you definitely should take advantage of their online fit specialist as well to make sure that you're wearing the right size bra and you can try this out. Um, Third Love stands behind the 24-7 t-shirt bra so much that they're willing to let our listeners try it for free. You just pay the shipping. So you'll wear the bra for 30 days, you take the tags off, you wear it, you wash it, you can take it traveling, You do all the things that you would normally do with a bra. If you love it, you keep it, and they'll charge your card. If you don't love it, you send it back for free, and your card will not be charged. So go to thirdlove.com slash books to get started. Again, that's thirdlove.com slash books, and have your free 30-day trial with the 24-7 t-shirt bra. This ties in with the whole nonfiction thing, because I did not get a chance to read this before it came out, but I did just pick up Unmentionable, the Victorian Lady's Guide to Sex, Marriage, and Manners, Mm -hmm. which I think we'll be talking a lot about, you know, old-fashioned underwear (laughs) and stuff like that. It sounds really great. Yeah, I haven't read it yet either, but... um... Our coworker, Rachel Smolter-Hall, who runs the Snapchat channel, featured it on Snapchat a couple of weeks ago, and it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that's why I picked it up. Oh, cool. I'm easily influenced. (laughs) It's coming from inside the machine. Yes. So, my next pick is You Can't Touch My Hair and Other Things I Still Have to Explain by Phoebe Robinson. Without a doubt, this is the funniest book I read in 2016.tumblr.com. Which makes lots of sense if you've read this book. Um, Robinson is the ho- one of the hosts of Two Dope Queens, the podcast she does with Jessica Williams from The Daily Show and a bunch of other things. It's hilarious. And this is a collection of smart, funny essays revolving around her experiences as a young black woman in America. She talks about racism, sexism, sex, stereotypes... As well as her love of U2. She lists, like, which U2 members she would like to sleep with, like, in which order. Um, She talks about Billy Joel and how much she loves him. She says some great stuff about Michael Fassbender. Uh, She talks about how the NFL needs to straighten its act up. 
uh, what it's like to feel the pressure to have to relax her hair, um, how Lisa Bonet is queen of the world. She's so funny. So, so funny. I can't say that enough. Um, I just cracked up. And I think I mentioned this when I talked about it the last time, but there were so many things that I wanted to read aloud, but none of them were um, PG enough. <laughs> a lot of the stuff was was pretty, including that thing about the sea tortoise like that I still haven't recovered from. Um, oh, right. I think we both read that out loud. Uh, she's she's hilarious. And this is exactly, I feel like, the exactly the right way to get her voice across. You know, like, you are shaking your head, whether it's yes or no, like, along with her, like, as you're laughing. It's mm-hmm. so funny. Um, she's fantastic. I can't wait to see what else she does next. Again, it's called You Can't Touch My Hair and Other Things I Still Have to Explain by Phoebe Robinson. Uh, she was supposed to be at one of our parties at Book Riot Live and then had a filming schedule issue with one of the uh, video series that she does. So Jen, our events director, uh, read in her place, like read the uh, introduction to the book. And so we got to hear Jen read. And Jen like learned on the fly how not PG some of the things <laughs> It was are. awesome. It was awesome. It was great. Um, my next book, I guess, you know, it's hard to find a different, uh, a, a bigger switch in tone from Phoebe Robinson <laughs> than to, to this pick. It's The Hour of Land by Terry Tempest Williams. No one who's listening to this show is surprised that a Terry Tempest Williams book is on my uh, best books of the year list. Uh, this is, I guess, basically a, a biography of America's national parks. Uh, it came out this year on the centennial of the national park system, but also it's Terry Tempest Williams' uh, sort of memoir within the national parks. Um, her family, uh, for generations, have been naturalists and conservationists. She grew up in the national parks, in some of them, uh, really visiting them and being sort of just out in nature in these places that the country has set aside um, and decided to protect and preserve so that all citizens can interact with beauty and nature and have access to those things. Um, the Each chapter of the book is about a different one of 13 of the national parks. And uh, those are selected because of either her relationship to them or because of their significance. Um, one of them, she spends a chapter uh, visiting uh, Gettysburg in every season of the year and reflecting on uh, what happened at Gettysburg, on its significance to the United States, and also on uh, what she comes to learn there. But there, uh, I love Terry Tempest Williams because her nature writing is always also personal and because our experiences in nature are personal. And so the book is about the big question of what does it mean to set aside these wild, beautiful places as a nation? Um, What might happen if everyone in the nation took advantage of that and spent time outdoors and breathed the fresh air? How might it change us if we allowed it to? But are also about her personal experiences and the people that she meets, the rangers that she interviews, the history that she gives. You really get a, a full sense of what America's national parks were meant to be, um, what they have become uh, in both good and bad ways. Uh, And it's just, it's really lovely and beautiful. It set me onto a whole like national parks vacation planning kick um, of, uh, you know, wanting to see more of these places that uh, have been set aside for us and that are mind-bogglingly gorgeous and that, for me at least, can really crack you open in ways that sitting in front of your computer screen can't. I I love the book for the mix of history and uh, research and nonfiction and memoir and the meditative quality that her writing always has. Uh, If you are into nature at all, you need to read The Hour of Land by Terry Tempest Williams. Fantastic. It's so good. It's so good. 
We should we should do a national parks tour. I'm I'm and I'm gonna it. do something. yeah. Oh, well, like you and I, we should go on a road trip. Oh, we should. You know, it would be this. more like National Lampoon than like national. <laughs> Parks National Park. Lamb Parks. Yeah. Uh, there's a show. This is so nerdy. Um, but there is a show on ABC. I think it comes on Saturday nights called Rock the Park. That is these two guys who have like they're in their late 20s or early 30s now. And they've been friends since they were kids. And in each episode, they go to a different national park and like tour it and climb a thing and go on a hike. Um, I found it on Netflix. I don't even know how I found it on Netflix months ago. And now there are new ones <laughs> airing. And we would just like they're very uh, clean and family friendly, and so we would be like the you know pink haired, profane version. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, since we are friends, I feel like I can't in good conscience continue without telling you that I just pounded a Red Bull <laughs> like, while okay. you were talking. <laughs> Things are about to get super interesting. Yes, speaking of super interesting, my next pick is Shirley Jackson: A Rather Haunted Life. I tried not to get, like, too specific. There are some some things that I read, like, some books I absolutely loved that were, like, very specific to me. Like, Lizzie Borden and Fleetwood Mac. Like, I read some books about them this year. Like, n- people don't really want to all know about that. But Shirley <laughs> Jackson is one of the most important writers in history. And this biography is fantastic. Um, a lot of people know who Shirley Jackson is. A lot of people do not know who Shirley Jackson is. You have been hearing a lot about her lately. She had an essay collection come out last year of mostly unpublished work. Um, they're making a movie of We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And while we are recording this, her 100th birthday is two days away. She's turning 100. Sure, she Excuse me, she would have turned 100 on December 14th. I was kind of freaking myself out the other day because it was Kirk Douglas's 100th birthday. And I was oh. thinking about how Shirley Jackson was born a few days after him but has been gone like for 52 years. Like, yeah. it's so it's so strange, the difference there. But, like I said, she is one of the most influential writers of our time. A lot of writers working today credit her with, with what they do. I mean, she's amazing. She was an incredible gothic writer like Henry James or Nathaniel Hawthorne. And she was doing all this at a time when this was not when women did things like this. She was doing it while raising four children. Um, this was like, in, she started writing in the, in the 1940s. She's probably most famous for the short story, The Lottery. You probably had to read it in school. It's like a perfectly normal story about a town, except once a year they get together and somebody picks the wrong thing and they get rocks thrown at them. Sounds familiar, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) She publishes in The New Yorker, and The New Yorker got more mail about that than anything that they had ever received before. They were like, is this... A joke. Some people thought it was a real story. They thought it was like a real article. Like, where is this town? Um, people were canceling their subscriptions. There, and everyone was like, "Who is this woman who wrote this story that's causing this big stir?" Um, but she, like I said, you know, she was living. It was the 1940s. She was married to a writer, and you know, you, she had to see like what it was like to for him to be able to accomplish things simply because he was a man. For him to be more widely accepted, for him to get to do things that she had to work really hard to do. And what it was like and what that strain was on their relationship. Um, she published such famous novels as The Haunting of Hill House. Again, um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is one of the most remarkable books I've ever read. And Franklin sort of dives into what her home life was like. Um, what it was, like I said, the, what the relationship was like with her husband, um, the toll that fame took on them. They both became severely overweight. 
the, they both, uh, or at least, I can't remember now, I read it so long ago, um, she took amphetamines, had a serious amphetamine addiction, um, and tragically she died of a heart attack at age 48. And Franklin does an amazing, thorough job researching her, uncovering stuff that, you know, hasn't been said before about her and her and talking about her influence on today's writers. I absolutely love this book. It's huge. It's a really, really big bio. Um, and it's marvelous. It's Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life by Ruth Franklin. That is maybe the most Liberty Wheelhouse book. Oh, it's so good. It is. Well, I believe you. I haven't read it, but I believe you. (laughs) It's like, it sounds like such a good fit. Um, Sticking in my wheelhouse, my next pick this week, or for best nonfiction of 2016, words are getting hard here in the doubleheader, um, is On Living by Carrie Egan. Uh, This one came out not too long ago, and I did talk about it the week that it came out, but it's stuck with me. I've given copies to several people. I think it's one of those books I'm going to be thinking about and talking about for a long time. Uh, Carrie Egan is a hospice chaplain. She has been for decades, and uh, so her job is to go sit and visit people in the last days of their lives and to speak with them and to speak with their families and moreover to let them speak and to let them tell their stories or talk about their fears or you know whatever it is that is pressing for them in those moments. It's her job to sit and to listen, uh, to be present and to make space for them. A chaplain is not a pastor, so she doesn't have to like convert them to anything. She doesn't have to preach certain beliefs. Uh, she's also not a therapist, so she's not trying to fix them. It's really just her job to be there with people. Um, and On Living is a collection of uh, each... It's a collection of essays, functionally. Each one is about a different person that she spent time with um, and the lesson that she learned uh, from her time with them and how that connects into sort of the overall lessons that her life as a hospice chaplain has taught her about the ways that we die, but moreover about what that means for the ways that we live and the ways that we can and should live, um, the secrets that we keep for far too long, the shame that we carry over things that we could have released, the fears that we have about the people that we love or about who we are as people, about whether we are good and worthy and valuable that um, that we reckon with in our last moments that uh, she hopes in sharing these stories, people are able to reckon with them earlier in life and live you know, happier and more fulfilled lives so that in their dying moments, they're not racked with the, kind of, uh, the kinds of pain and fear that she's seen. Uh, but not all the stories are, you know, are heavy. Um, Many of them are very warm and inspiring people that she met who were facing their last moments uh, with a lot of grace and with a lot of happiness about uh, the lives that they did leave. There's just sort of the full spectrum here, as you would expect in a book about sort of the full spectrum of human life. Um, And there's something to take away no matter who you are. Like the only thing that all of us will do uh, is die and we'll all have to make sense of it. Uh, in some way. And so she also writes about helping people to make meaning out of the fact that they are dying, helping people come to terms with the fact that someone that they love very much is dying, um, and how she has changed as a result of learning what it means to make space for people to do that. It's really, really beautiful. Um, it's not an easy read, but it's also not what I would call like a, or what uh, I picked this up from uh, Jeff's partner, Michelle. Uh, it's not like a five alarm snot bomb. There are some pieces that will make you cry. There are some pieces that are hard to read, but there are also some that are just very inspiring. Uh, and will you will end the book with, you know, a renewed sense of purpose, I think, about 
you know, how to approach each day um, so that at the end you feel good about how you have lived and how you've helped others to live. It's it's wonderful. This is maybe the most me book of the year. Um, it dovetailed with some of the mindfulness stuff I've been reading and just with bigger questions on my mind. Um, again, I think, you know, a great read for anyone. If you're looking for like the thing to read after Tiny Beautiful Things, this is also uh, a good place to go. So that's On Living by Carrie Egan. I have no segue. There's the not one. <laughs> yeah, there's no smooth way to do it. So let's just jump in. Okay. Our next sponsor is Comic Bento. Comic Bento is back. Comic Bento is the original graphic novel subscription box. Every month, a box filled with $60 to $80 worth of graphic novels ships right to your door. With a different theme each month, you're sure to discover classic favorites, hidden gems, and new and exciting worlds among the curated selections. If you're a longtime comics reader or new to the world of ink and excitement, Comic Bento is for you. And this month's theme, available through December 31st, is Mighty. Uh, the Comic Bento spotlights Marvel Comics this month, and they present uh, two premium titles from the House of Ideas and two more mighty books from their publishing peers. And so, if you are interested in getting graphic novels delivered to your door or picking this up as a gift for someone else, you can visit comicbento.com and subscribe. And if you use the code RIOT15, you'll get 15% off your subscription. Also, no segue here for you. So just, I guess, keep going. Oh, yeah, it's me. <laughs> I was busy, like, looking at the thing. Red Bull, Red Bull, Red Bull, Red Bull. <laughs> Squirrel. Um, I talked about this book, I think, two podcasts ago. But I just wanted to touch on it again today because it is probably the best nonfiction book that I read this year. It's called Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy by Heather Ann Thompson. This also shortlisted for the National Book Award. So fantastic. Um, basically, at the Attica Correction Facility, um, on September 9th, 1971, the inmates took over the prison. And a few days later, by uh, the end of the day, there were 39 officers and inmates dead and over 100 men injured. Um, the media presented this as the prisoners rioting, they were terrible people, look what they're doing. Um, when in fact, they were protesting the inhumane treatment that they were receiving at the facility. Um, and officials actually, after like a three-day standoff, stormed in with guns blazing and killed both correction officers and prisoners. Um, but at the time, only prisoners were charged with wrongdoing for their participation in the um, prison takeover. The officials did not accept any responsibility for their role in what happened. And over four decades later, lawsuits of victims on both sides continue. Um, and for the first time, documents have been unsealed. Um, things that were kept hidden from the media, hidden from, you know, the country about what happened, hidden from the people who were there. And Thompson had a chance to look at some of these documents. Some of these documents actually disappeared again in the middle of her research. Um, it's They're still trying to cover things up. And it just shows how the media can manipulate the truth and how the government covers things up. Um, it's, it's very, you know, relevant to today. Um, it's so amazingly well-researched. I am a research nerd. I love, you know, I'll Google anything. So I love the amount of research that went into this book and all the notes, and it's great. So again, it's called Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy by Heather Ann Thompson. 
I'm going to change up the order of my books so that we have a segue here. Okay. Um, because also on the subject of prisons, one of my uh, favorite nonfiction reads of the year came out early this year, uh, is Incarceration Nations by Boz Dreisinger. Uh, she visits uh, prisons in nine countries around the world to sort of examine and rethink the state of justice and also the purposes of prison and how those purposes are borne out or not. She's looking at uh, the modern prison complex uh, in America and then how prisons work around the world. So um, she looks at prisons that are focused on the very punitive, like you will come here and it will be miserable uh, and you will be punished. And she goes, uh, she looks at the horrors of solitary confinement, at the really inhumane treatment uh, that some people receive in prisons, um, all the way around to sort of the other side of the spectrum to prisons that are really focused on restorative justice, of um, helping people to, helping the convicts to uh, heal, helping them to, you know, seek forgiveness for their actions, also to uh, overcome whatever circumstances led to their committing a crime. Um, often it puts them face to face with their victims or with people who were affected by their crime to really try to reckon with what they did um, and to help them uh, truly to become better. Um, prisons often talk about like the purpose is to rehabilitate you, but Dreisinger dives into how much is that really happening or not? And what does a prison look like that is truly geared towards rehabilitation towards restoring people to uh, their humanity, to restoring them into their communities, um, to really attempting to make the world better. Um, and so there's a huge variety of what this looks like in the nine countries that she visits. And some of it is uh, shocking. Some of it is sad in how unsurprising that it is. It's very, it's all very thoughtful. Um, and I think especially relevant as a read right now, when we're hearing things about for-profit prisons, um, about, you know, allowing corporations to continue to own prisons, what that re what the results of that really are for the people who are kept behind bars. Um, and of course, all the tangly governmental things that are caught up there with the money uh, and with race, uh, with using prisons as a way to disenfranchise black people primarily. Um, it's, it's, you know, this is an important book. It's not an easy read, but Dreisinger uh, makes it as easy as she can in telling the stories uh, in a really engaging way. She gets, you know, to what her own experience is. She's a white woman, um, and she talks about the uh, privilege that she has that in being able to access some of these places and to get access to people who will talk to her and to tell these stories um, that other people might not be able to get the same access because of who they are. Um, she really sort of faces it, I think, in a in an honest and open way. And the book is really fascinating. Uh, so if you're interested in this at all, I think this is the thing we should all be paying attention to. Incarceration Nations is a nice uh, entry point. Oh, <laughs> my microphone <laughs> didn't want to work. A plus segue would listen again. Okay. So I had a really hard time choosing this, especially this episode. I don't know why. I read so many good books this year. Do you remember like in the middle of the year, it felt like, we weren't reading that much stuff that we were enjoying. And we were yeah, kind of like, yeah. what's up with this year? And then I got mm -hmm. to the end of the year and I was like, oh my goodness, so many good things. Um, so I was having a really hard time deciding. So I decided to go with Everything is Teeth. It is a graphic novel memoir. Um, I did not get a chance to read it when it came out. Um, but I'm so glad that I did finally get a chance to read it. And I thought, we haven't really talked about a lot of graphic novels or graphic yeah, we memoirs. Haven't. So... 
I went with this. It's fantastic. Again, it's called Everything is Teeth, and it's by Evie Wilde and illustrated by Joe Sumner. Um, you might recognize Evie Wilde's name. She wrote a great novel called All the Birds Singing. Um, I keep wanting to say All the Birds in the Sky because that was another great novel out this year, but that's not it. Um, this is a memoir about her growing up in coastal Australia. It's centered around when she's like 10, 10 years old, and she is obsessed with sharks. So right there, she wins my heart. I love sharks. And she talks about, like, her obsession with sharks, the things that she learns about sharks. Because um, they're all over the place in Australia. Like, they're, it's not like here where they're like, we occasionally see a shark. Like, they have big sharks with big teeth, and they are everywhere on the coast. Um, and it talk, she talks about, like, how it taught her about fear. And there's that sort of hindsight that comes with being an adult, like, looking back at when you were a child. Um, how, while sometimes children can pick up on things that you don't realize... They also are unaware or um, sort of interpret differently the things that are happening around them. And she talks about, like, the sense of helplessness that she had as a young child. And it's just this very, like, slim part of her life. And it's so fascinating. Um, the illustrations are fantastic. It's in black and white. The people are very cartoony. Evie looks sort of almost like Phoebe from, from uh, Phoebe and her unicorn. Sort of that, or like Susie from Calvin and Hobbes. Um, but the sharks are completely realistic. All the sharks in the book and the details about the sharks, they're almost like photographs. They're they're perfect. And it, and it really makes like a really, like a different contrast, like about that stuff. And like I said, it's just a great memoir about, you know, being a kid and what you're afraid of, you know, and what you think you know. It's just a really brief glimpse of beauty and fear. Um it's, it's awesome. So again, it's called Everything is Teeth by Evie Wilde and Joe Sumner. All right. Last one. Last one. Here we go. Um, I owe this pick a shout out to Lisa Lucas at the National Book Foundation. Um, I don't know that I would have been recommended this book otherwise, but she came on the Book Riot podcast for our version of the halftime show back in June, and she shouted this out as one of her best books of the year so far. It's Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching by Michael Denzel Smith. Uh, this is his memoir of coming to consciousness as a young black man in America, um, coming to political consciousness, coming to understand what it means to be a black man in America, coming to understand himself as a feminist. Um, he writes about the black women who propelled the feminist movement, the black women who built the Black Lives Matter movement and who raised him up to understand himself, uh, both as a black activist and as a feminist. Uh, it's the first book by a man that I've read that really does intersectionality very well. Um, and that gets to his, you know, it's a memoir, it gets to his personal experiences, but places them in the context of the culture that he grew up in. He's in his 20s. Uh, so technology was a thing. Uh, this uh, growing up with Obama becoming the president uh, during his younger, the younger part of his life uh, was a historical and you know significant moment to him. All of those things come into play. It's thoughtful. It's interesting. His voice is a pleasure to spend time with. Um, and he takes these big ideas and I think synthesizes them really nicely into how he came to understand them himself. And he, uh, in doing that, breaks out mistakes that he made, um, you know, 
errors in his own thought, like issues that he didn't think he had to worry about because they didn't tie to his identity at first, but then coming to understand that, you know, if you're fighting for one kind of equality, you're fighting for all equality um, and how to do that and be effective. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad that Lisa talked about it on that show. It, it's from a small press. I wish that I had the name in front of me right now. Um, and I think that if this book had come out from one of the bigger publishers, we would have been hearing a ton about it. It would have had a big PR push. It would have been right there alongside uh, like Ta-Nehisi Coates and The Fire this time. Um, it belongs on your shelf of contemporary work about race in America. Um, so if you haven't heard of it or you haven't picked it up yet, please, please do that. Definitely one of the best books of the year. Invisible Man got the whole world watching. I have it. I still haven't read it. But I, just, it. Had, I just had eyes on it on my shelf and I was like, oh yeah. When you said you didn't know the publisher, and then and now I can't find it. It's surprising <laughs> that I can't find something in my office. Although I did also notice um, earlier while I was talking that, like, sitting, like, one shelf away from each other, I had bought two copies of a book. I was like, oh. <laughs> I can't imagine, like, it seems to me that that would happen to you all the time because of just how many books there are in your house. It did used to happen to me all the time. And then I started, like, keeping a spreadsheet online, but it still occasionally happens, apparently. Well, it'll so, be okay. that was the truth. The mm-hmm. whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yes. So, now what, what happens? Gonna, what are we going to read next? You tell me. Oh, so I'm reading this book. It's amazing. Uh, I started it when it came out, and then for some reason I put it down, like, for work reasons and didn't get back to it, and so now I'm really into it. It's called Over the Plain Houses by Julia Franks. It takes place in the mountains of North Carolina in 1939. It's about a woman uh, who is married to a minister. He used to be a logger, and then he found religion. Um, He's sort of becoming a religious fanaticist. And she is very unhappy in her marriage, and he's not very nice to her, so she goes out in the middle of the night to, like, get some space and collect her thoughts. Like, she likes to take these midnight walks, um, and he gets the idea in his head that she is a witch because she's walking about at night. And not helping matters is a USDA agent who is there trying to help them learn about crops and is giving um, the wife... Uh, uh, suggestions on like how she could do things better and that their son should go to this special school and her husband does not appreciate this and I don't think anything good is going to happen I don't think things are going to turn out well for anyone involved but the writing is fantastic and I'm completely immersed so there you have it I'm going to kick it old school. Um, Since I've been thinking about nature and reading about nature, I couldn't find my old copy of Walden from college, so I ordered a new one, and I'm going to hang out with Henry David Thoreau a little bit and read some Walden and, like, contemplate moving to the woods. Even though he was a big faker. Yeah, but he's he was a big faker who wrote, like, really gorgeous sentences. Yeah. <laughs> and then had his mom do his laundry. Yeah, I'll forgive him. Whatever. <laughs> Like, you know, if your mom does your science project, but you give a really killer presentation about it, I'm still going to give you points for presentation. You know, like, think about how many how many stories and things that we know, you know, throughout history are very different that, like, you can't get away with that kind of stuff now, you know? No, like, Twitter would be fact-checking you of, like, well, yeah. there are no records of Henry David Thoreau. Exactly. Someone would, like, find your credit card thing and your RFID chip and, like, prove that you never went anywhere near Walden. Yeah. 
There was an article in the New Yorker or the New York Times a couple years ago about how John Steinbeck probably didn't travel around as much as he did in Travels with Charlie, that he spent a lot of his time in parking lots doing his writing. (laughs) Basically, the the outcome was like, eh, no one cares. You know, like Travels with Charlie is a great book and no one cares. Yep. So, you know, now nobody could get away with that. Yeah, I'm just going to, you know, I think it'll be interesting. I haven't read Walden since high school or college, so it'll be interesting to see. Like, I remember being struck by it when I was learning about the transcendentalists. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. He, now he has to live up to Terry Tempest Williams. So mm, It's not going to happen. Yeah, probably not. Uh, on that note, that is our show. Those are our favorite nonfiction reads of the year so far. Thank you to our sponsors, Third Love. You can go to thirdlove.com slash books to start your free 30-day trial with the 24-7 t-shirt bra. And to Comic Bento, go to comicbento.com and use the code RIOT15 to get 15% off your subscription. And... Uh, Yes, those are our sponsors. If you have a, uh, <laughs> I lost myself in the notes for a minute. Uh, if you have anything to let us know, thoughts, questions, whatever, you can send those to all the books at bookriot.com or hit us up on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, S C H I N S K Y. Liberty is Miss Liberty. And if you've got a minute and would like to send us a little end of the year treat, we would love a rating or review on iTunes. And if you would like to learn about books out today, if you want to hear about new releases, you can do so in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. We'll be back next week with highly anticipated titles of 2017. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.